Cup of Tea Tales, Woodhouse Feast, Roundy Park Fair and other delights. After last week discussing Roundy Park and the Little Fun Fair, I thought more about the larger fairs or feasts that I went to. I can still remember the excitement of going to the fair. When I was very young it was the small permanent fun fair at Roundy where there was a helter-skelter, some swing boats and a small roundabout with boats and bosses for the very young. I remember the joy of climbing the stairs to the top deck of the little boss and it was something that my own children loved when they were little. As I got a bit older, we'd go with the family to Woodhouse Feast near Leeds University on Woodhouse Moor. These names obviously hark back to olden times when celebrations and feasting would take place to mark holy days. The moor was close to the outskirts of Leeds City and was a suitable place for traders and tinkers to sell their wares, entertainers to ply their trade and for the locals to celebrate and have fun. It also provided an opportunity for the young to meet and court and for locals to purchase items not available at other times of the year. When I attended the feast it had developed quite a lot but it was still an opportunity to have fun, meet other young people, show off and spend money. As children my brothers and I loved the lights, the sound, the crowds and the smell the fair brought. The workers appeared exotic as they're darker skinned than most Leeds folk, used copious amounts of hair cream, wore tight black jeans and had tattoos. They called to passerbys to get them to buy their wares or to try their hand to win a teddy or plaster of Paris ornaments. There were roundabouts, waltzes, swing boats, dodgems and a host of contraptions that would scare the living daylights out of you as a young child. But for teenagers they were an opportunity to demonstrate your masculinity by fearlessly hanging off the bars as you were spun around or by bashing your dodgem head-on into another and laughing at the joy of it. The girls would be enthralled by the bravado of the fairground boys who danced between the whirling horses, collecting fees, darted between the dodgems and hung off the bars at the back. They walked backwards collecting money on the waltzes as the floor went up and down, and they never missed a beat. They were poised, relaxed masters of impressing teenage girls. There were local lads who would emulate their feats, but due to lack of practice, they never quite cut the mustard. For us kids, it was hook the duck, darts into playing cards, air rifle ranges, bran tubs, coconut shies and ping pong balls into goldfish bowls. The most sought after prize was a goldfish. The poor creatures were hanging in plastic bags, and if you were lucky enough to win one, you'd carry it around as a prize possession until you got home. My parents took us to the pet shop at Airhills, where we would buy a bowl and a little weed and goldfish food. With two brothers, there was a good chance that we would get at least one or two on a visit to the fair. Most times the poor fish would be lucky to live out the weekend, but the good news was that the bowls and food were ready for future fairs. In fairness, there were one or two fish that were clearly made of sterner stuff than the usual goldfish and they survived for much longer periods. I can remember well staring into the bowl and being entranced by their shimmering scales and their fluid movements around their restricted new homes. 
It was not just the rides and prizes. The entire experience was a whirl of lights, sounds and smells. The ground underfoot was trodden into mud and you had to step carefully over electrical cables which ran from generators that thumped a rhythm in the background, almost drowned out by the blaring chant music of the time. Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Bill Haley, Elvis and others filled the air and added to the excitement. The fair was the facade of celebration, but lurking behind were the caravans and homes of the workers. Some were chrome, brightly painted and well-maintained, but most were fairly run down. Lorries, trucks and vans were waiting to carry them to a new location after a few days of the fair. The senses were overload and smells of food wafted everywhere, tempting us to buy and taste their wares. Toffee apples, brandy snaps, doughnuts and ice creams all were available, as well as the truly magical candy floss. The machines that spun the sugar were entertainment on their own. Lurid dyes were added, bright pink, green, yellow. They were sticky and sweet and must have cost almost nothing to make but managed to extract the few remaining coins we had. It was a tired but happy family that would return to the car, nurse our fish or other prizes, and drive home. There was a similar fare that would arrive each year at Roundy Park. This dwarfed the permanent amusements, but I'm sure they didn't mind the extra trade the main fare brought. This travelling fare would be set on the rise overlooking Waterloo Lake and the cafe. It could have been the same as the one from Woodhouse, but I don't think so. It had all the same sorts of entertainment, and one I had forgotten was the strength-testing machines. There were two main types. The originals used a large wooden mallet that was swung and hit a post, and the strength was recorded on a gauge. The strongest of blows would sound a bell. The second type, which I think came later, involved a punch ball, You thumped the ball as hard as you could and it recorded the power on a large dial. The strongest blows would similarly sound a bell. These were another alternative for men and boys to show their physical prowess in front of potential admirers. I remember one specific incident on the Dodgems at Roundy Park when I was a teenager in the late 1960s. A few of us were there and it was an afternoon session that wasn't particularly busy. There was a group from Allerton Grange on some dodgems, and I was on one, as was one of my friends. Only about half the cars were running, and there was the usual lad in the kiosk controlling the power, and another who was collecting money and policing behaviour. Times had changed a little, and the front-on collisions were supposedly banned. Health and safety gone mad. This clearly hadn't been taken on board by the assembled teenagers, and there was a lot of crashes, cheers, cries and general mirth. At the back of the car was a rod which went vertically up to a wire netting that supplied the power. At the top of the rod was a metal shoe that dragged along the netting, keeping the contact and the power supplied. I suppose this was the one part that wore out frequently, and I think they just slotted onto the pole. On this occasion there was shouting and bangs as the cars collided, which was almost drowned out by music. But then I saw, almost in slow motion, two dodgems collide with great force. The rear end of one lifted and then crashed back down. 
It must have been a freak occurrence, but the metal shoe jumped off the top of the pole and fell down onto the boy driving it. The side of the shoe struck him on the forehead just above the eye. I saw blood pour out and his face turned red. It all happened in a fraction of a second. The man in the kiosk must have seen what happened. The power was turned off and the car stopped. Everyone's attention turned to the poor lad. The man ran over carrying what looked like a tea towel and he clamped it onto the forehead of the now sobbing lad. Nowadays I'm sure there would have been first aid kits and first aiders but then there didn't appear to be. He was helped out of the dodgem and led away. I suppose an ambulance must have been called but I didn't see it and within seconds the dodgem was pushed to the side, power was restored and the show was back on. My friend and I saw him several weeks later and he was proud to show us his impressive scar. He was very lucky not to have lost an eye. I do not know whether any inquiry into the accident happened, but maybe not. Parents were not as quick to sue as they are today and accidents were more accepted without someone needing to be blamed. During the day the fairs were reasonably safe and respectable places and this was the case in early evening when children were still about. Later at night, however, I believe fights often broke out between local groups of boys and the fair workers. This may have resulted from jealousy as the workers chatted up local girls. I never really saw this, but there was a reputation that the fair lads had knives and would use them. As the 50s and 60s moved through, there were also confrontations between teddy boys, mods, rockers and later skinheads. Adrenaline, testosterone and teenagers are a dangerous mix, and I'm sure that it's always been so. The fairs were always short-lived. There was a day or two of setting up, and after five or so days they were dismantled, packed up and they headed off to a new venue. We knew they would return in another year. When they had gone, the ground was left trampled and the grass worn away. But in a surprisingly short time it recovered. Soon there was not a trace, except for the memories of those who had attended. If you've enjoyed my tale, then you might like to know that there are two collections. The first, Cup of Tea Tales, The Early Years, and the second, Another Cup of Tea, The Teenage Years. They are available in paperback form and as e-books on Amazon and Kindle.